Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at Audible, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of genres, and you can get one for free with a free 30-day trial just by going to audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. you got to spell it out the traditional way. audibletrial.com slash other people. Go get yourself a freebie, a free audiobook. You can listen to it while you're in motion. You can listen to it while you're completely inert. It's your choice. Audibletrial.com slash other people. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is unregulated media. This is fundamentally disorganized. How are you doing today? I think this is unregulated. No one's telling me what to do. I don't know if Apple does anything over at iTunes. I think I'm completely unregulated. Anyway, it's good to be with you. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. My guest today is Joshua Wolf Shank. His new book is called Powers of Two, and uh, it's available now in a beautiful uh, hardcover edition from Eamon Dolan. That's an imprint of uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It also happens to be the name of a human being, Eamon Dolan. That's the editor. And you're going to hear more about Eamon in just a moment. So this is a really terrific book. Perhaps you saw it excerpted uh, in The Atlantic not too long ago. Uh, it got a lot of play on the internet. It's getting uh, some play in the media, including uh, this media, this unregulated media. It's about the power and uh, the primacy of creative pairs when it comes to uh, creative activity, and it seeks to debunk the myth of the lone genius, among other things. So it's a very compelling book. It's a very compelling argument. It gets you thinking about uh, your uh, writing life, if you're a writer, or whatever you do. It gets you thinking about how you approach creativity, how you think about creativity, how creativity ha- you know, actually happens, which has been uh, something of a theme recently on this program. I've, I've, you know, I talked to Austin Kleon uh, just an episode or two ago, and uh, now I'm talking to uh, Mr. Wolfshank, Mr. Shank, or uh, Mr. Wolfshank. <laughs> Either one works, I think. So um, I think it's good, especially for writers to consider uh, the ideas that, uh, you know, this book presents because, you know, we, uh, we work alone. We write alone. It, very rarely do writers of books work with anyone else, uh, particularly in the act of composition. You know, that's a solitary endeavor. And I think... Uh, when it comes to self-conceptualization, uh, we like to think of ourselves as loners, as individualists, and so on. Uh, but as the power of two uh, makes clear, this is a fallacy. You know, every creative endeavor, including a book, is a collaboration. It takes uh, a village to get a book out into the world in good form. And this is something that, uh, you know, on a personal level is of great interest to me because I think uh, I screwed this up in like, uh, you know, the early part of my career slash up until just recently. And I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with writers where we have mutually agreed that the reason we liked uh, writing and the reason we got into it in the first place is that we didn't want to deal with people. 
or we wanted a narrative control, you know, like those sorts of things. But, uh, what I've come to is that, uh, you know, that sort of thinking is uh, mistaken. And I think at its worst can be a form of hubris. This idea that you don't need people or that, you know, you can function without them. Even writers who, uh, you know, are truly solitary people or who, you know, uh, have an awful time trying to be social or don't know how to talk to people. Like, even those people, in order to get published and published well and to get their work out into the world, uh, it takes people, other people, to get that done. There's no lone genius. So, what's my point? I think I think what I'm you know what I'm saying is that you know if you're out there and you're a person who is struggling in particular with your uh, written work, you're working on a book, it's eluding you, or you you know you have a book but you can't get it sold or you can't get it agented, or you know any, you know any any number of things. Uh, I think I would encourage you to look at how many people. Uh, you are associated with creatively? Are you in a writer's group? Are you social at all? <laughs> Have you left your parents' basement over the last two years? Like that sort of thing. It's so instrumental to have human relationships and to have um, support. So I think what I'm finding personally, and I can't, I don't want to speak too much to you guys because I'm not in the business of giving advice, but personally, what I'm finding is that, you know, this show is all about uh, my need to uh, interact with people for too long. I was too solo. It's part of my problem. Uh, I'm a social creature. I think we all are to a degree, you know, to greater and lesser extents, but ultimately we all are. Nobody can go it alone. And then um, I also like to collaborate, which, I, you know, I used to say I didn't necessarily, but I actually do. And I think this show is a collaboration. Clearly it wouldn't work if I didn't have a guest and if I didn't have listeners. So that's just me. And I think that's also a way of saying that, like, it's not that I can't write a book or that I wouldn't want to in the future, but if I do, um, it's going to be in concert with other things. It's not going to be the only thing. And it's going to be a more social experience for me. Probably like join some sort of writer's group or start one myself just to keep the thing, you know, keep things rolling and to make it less hellish. So, uh, all of which is a way of saying that this book really spoke to me. And I hope that this conversation, um, is interesting for you guys. And, and, you know, if you're in the same boat or if you're thinking, uh, in similar ways to, uh, both, uh, me and to, uh, Joshua Wolfshank, then maybe you could pick it up and read it. Okay. So let's get started with the program. This is Joshua Wolfshank. The book once again is called powers of two. It's out there now from Eamon Dolan. Here he is folks. This is Joshua Wolfshank. I always loved language and I, I had, I had some kind of knack for it. I could tell when I started writing papers and high school for class and um, I you know, wrote for the school paper and I, I liked to fool around with silly stuff and, and made, made some things up and um, I wrote for uh, literary magazines and the newspaper at college and I had these two impulses. Um, one was 
you know, uh, moralistic. I wanted to teach or do something meaningful for the world. I kind of this kind of rabbinic impulse, although I didn't think about being a rabbi, but um, to to do good. And I, I had this impulse to create and you know make language and also more of a, a kind of egoistic thing. That you know, I, I loved feeling the newsprint of with my name, you know, with, in, the, in the fresh ink when the the paper rolled off the presses in college and it kind of made me feel real in a way that I, I don't think I, I did. Um, and, um, those things came together with this vision of doing a, a kind of, um, you know, political journalism. Um, and I, I went off and wrote for Washington monthly, new, new Republic, those kinds of magazines. Um, and, um, it's very much about trying to, you know, present something of importance to the world to try to affect some kind of change in a good way. And I was very taken with um, Jim Fallows and Mick Lemon and Taylor Branch and these Michael Kinsley, these guys who are the heroes of that world. Um, and over my 20s, um was more and more, um, you know, drawn to essayists and, you know, uh, voicey literature and uh, personal revelation and uh, kind of you know risky stuff um, that is you know also I think does great good in the world but you know by digging into you know uh, stranger places than than you know the major issues of the day and one way or another my work has tried to straddle those two you know those those two worlds trying to do something useful meaningful. Um, and you're trying to do something personal and, and, uh, and lyrical. So, and, and where are you from originally? Grew up in Cincinnati in the suburbs. Okay. And did you have like, uh, like writers in your family? You come from a literary or artistic family? My dad is a photographer, was a photographer and a very fine one that, you know, never had any commercial success. Um, he developed real estate, but he, he spent a lot of his life in the dark room. So we were my brothers and I were, you know, definitely trained in the artist life uh, by him. Not, you know, not explicitly, but you know, we were around him and his process a lot. My oldest brother David um, became a writer in college and became a magazine writer and book writer when he when he graduated, and uh, that, that had a big influence on me too. And he was a, he was certainly a mentor to me and my middle brother's a documentary filmmaker. So we, we're actually all do work that has a lot of resonance. Okay. And, so, and where did you go to school? Uh, where did I go to college? Yeah. Harvard college. Okay. Okay. And so did you study uh, literature there or writing? And I, I didn't, you know, I did take one writing class. I mean, I took a freshman, you know, they call it expository writing actually with a, 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 a brilliant essayist named Pat Hoy who was a, a, a great essayist and a, and a, and a great teacher. Um, and he taught me a lot. Um, but, you know, the workshop culture was was still very fledgling then. And I remember very distinctly when I graduated, someone I'd worked with at the paper who had also edited me for a literary magazine said she was going to go get an MFA and, uh, in nonfiction. I, I, and it was like, I, that was so foreign. I think there was one program then. Had I come out of school 10 years later, I'm, that would have been such a natural path for me. And I'm still sad I didn't have that experience in my 20s, but it really, it uh, it barely existed then. Um, so I went off to write for magazines, and that's where my, my education was. 
Okay. And so how did you break in? You know, like you, you leave Harvard and, um, did you start like, start out interning or did you land somewhere with a entry level? I'm glad you asked that question. I was an intern at the new Republic and I think I've got paid $200 a something i don't know <laughs> whatever well, it was at least it was pay, at least, over, yeah at least it was paid over a lot amount of time yeah no the new republic internship was really was really cool and there were, there were uh and I, they was a place where you could write and you could be sit in editorial meetings they were very serious about it being but interesting part of the stuff and then i went to work for the washington monthly monthly which was this um kind of um you know trial by fire like you know combat pay and like working 85 hours a week, editing, writing, doing production. And Charlie Peters, who has since retired, uh, you know, um, was, is this legendary figure in, in DC and people did it because of the, of the people who had, who had done the job before it had a kind of prestige to it, even though it was really, really hard. And I'm all, I'm glad you asked the question too, because I was totally not paying my way then. And I, I like to try to be honest about that because you know, I think, you know, money, it's actually the subject of my next book. Money is like the great undiscussed, yes. uh, you know, thing in the arts. And it just always really bugs me that, you know, people don't talk about it because it's, it's really important that, you know, I had a dad who, you know, helped me out. Um, I had a car that my grandfather gave me in high school, you know, I, and even when I wasn't, um, like actually getting money from my dad, there was a sense of freedom, you know, Right. like I could, you know, if I needed to, I could go back to Cincinnati. I could, you know, I, uh, and I, so I, I felt a kind of freedom to take risks. I will say that actually bit me in the ass in my late twenties when I, um, my grandfather died and inherited a little money and I was more comfortable than I, than I probably ought to have been for a guy in his late twenties. And I look back now and I, I should have been hustling harder I mean, I did work that's meaningful to me. I wrote these essays for Harper's that took forever and were, you know, very unusual pieces. Um, but I look back at my colleagues who were like on staff at Time Magazine and like, you know, just hustling for freelance. That what turns out to have been a golden age for magazine journalism. And I think had I had I, had I been a little hungrier, just in the you know in the basic sense, I might have uh, advanced a little quicker as a writer. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, you know, because you do need, like all artists, I think, in order to do the work in some form, need support. And you see it repeatedly, you know, you know, as you read literary biography or you read about the lives of anybody who makes any kind of art, like somewhere along the line, there tends to be somebody or some sort of fortuitous situation that allows them to do the work unencumbered. But like too much of a good thing can sometimes be a bad thing. And it's, I guess it's, you know, it's different for different people and it's a very fine line. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm fascinated by that and I'm fascinated by the details. I mean, there's a huge hidden story of money in the, in the, in the, in the, in the circle of transcendentalists that Emerson was quite wealthy. I think he had a little bit of money and then he married a wealthy woman. It's like the story of Walden Pond. That's just, that's like a Emerson owned that land. Yeah, you know, he and sued, he's like, yeah, he sued his uh, his uh, dead wife's family for her inheritance. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's know? right. And he got it right. And he, and he got it. You know, but yeah. like people, like I think people uh, deify him, and and you know his work is is tremendous. So I mean, there's a lot of merit to that. But I just think it's funny that like that part of the story is overlooked because 
you know, what enabled him to do all of that great work was the relative comfort and, you know, that he was able to live in and the freedom that he had because he wasn't out there trying to make a living. He could write yeah. and think and read and go on speaking yep. tours and whatnot, but nobody talks about it. And, you know, you can look, I think, as a young writer at somebody like Emerson and just feel like a piece of shit because you're like, oh, my God, I'm doing nothing with my life or I'm working this day job. And it's like, well, you know, you didn't inherit a bunch of money when you were 22 and have the advantages that he had. And he was also spectacularly talented. But, you know, it's not, it's it's interesting to hear the full story. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you. And I, I mean, I, a lot of my impulses is to try to speak the truth of these things because I feel like I need to know in order to stay sane. Right. And, you know, it shows up and so it shows up around money. It shows up around process. You know, I mean, I you read a book and you think it'll take there's no way around thinking that it, it takes about the, the amount of time that it took you to read it. I mean, that's just it feels like you're being spoken to. And so you need to be reminded over and over again. This, this was two years. This was five years. This was a lifetime of work. Um, and um I, I'm preoccupied with conversations about the creative process because I feel like it's, you know, it's like this mindfulness instruction for a creative life and, you know, to, to be able to, um, you know, to just know what the reality is and to be able to observe it and, and yeah, not feel crazy when, you know, when it, when, when your life is not, you know, fitting some kind of, uh, false idea of, of, of what, of how things should be. Well, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting to kind of loop back to, um, the good fortune, you know, that you have had in your life and that allowed you to, um, you know, live and work in, uh, com you know, relative comfort compared to a lot of uh, your colleagues who are out there hustling, as you mentioned or whatever. And I think that another part of that is that when you have, uh, financial good fortune and you don't have to be, um, you know, working the kind of day jobs that people, you know, usually have to work and you have independence, then you can find yourself, uh, particularly in the writing game, more isolated, you know, because yes. by, you know, by virtue of the fact that, you know, you don't have to be going into a, an office every day. You're not immersed socially in the That's ways right. of other writers. So it kind of makes sense to me that this would be a preoccupation of yours because I imagine that, you know, in your thirties, you might have been uh, independent and working solo in ways that your um, friends and colleagues were not. That's right. Yeah. Now there's a way in which, you know, yeah, being forced into, um, in, in, into connection of any, of any form. I actually just had lunch with a guy, you know, a, a, you know, who's involved in a creative project. Everyone in the world will know. Um, and I wasn't interviewing him, but I, I, just, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be sly. I just, I just don't, don't want to, I want to preserve his privacy, but he was talking about how he got started with a partner and it's, they were both temps, you know? So that's just a classic thing. Like he didn't want to be a temp, I'm sure, but he was there. And some other kid who's, you know, wants to be, you know, wants to do creative work is temping in the cubicle, uh, caddy corner from him. And they struck some, 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 they struck up conversation and, 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 uh, you know, some really monumental things, you know, emerge from those two brains in concert, you know, a decade later or something. So that's the electricity. And, you know, it's a, it's a good uh, moment to sort of transition into maybe like a broad overview of your book and, you know, what you're like postulating with it and, and the big ideas that you're sort of ruminating on in it. Um, so if you could just maybe give listeners an idea of, uh, you know, what you're after here. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so it starts with this question, like this thing we call chemistry, 
like, what is that? Um, like I'm, when I look at the, the connecting tissue of my work, it's, it, it's, I start with these very big naive questions. And I, and I, I say they're naive in the sense that it's like, as though you're going to get an answer, you know, um, as though you're going to really ever understand it. I mean, I still, I've spent five years on it and I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm, 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 I'm very humbled, um, by, you know, by, by, by the question, but I'm fascinated by it too. And I thought, um, I had had a, I, I wrote a book called Lincoln's Melancholy and with my editor of that book, I, we worked out a kind of method of trying to take a big question and, and, uh, use the text of an eminent life and a, and a life that people think they're very familiar with, um, as a way of, 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 of working through, you know, of bringing it to life, um, and, and trying to answer the question, but then using the question to sort of reflect on this, on the story and the story reflects back on this kind of, uh, perennial issue. And I thought that would work with this question. If I looked at eminent partners and I imagined John and Paul, and I literally actually had a picture of them in my head and I thought about the space between them, you know, and, and you're talking about John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Yes. Thank you. Sure. Um, you know, on a first name basis. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> right. And I, um, I wonder how many people, if you were just say John and Paul, how many people would get it? But yeah. Most. I'm glad, I'm glad to, to introduce their, 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 their formal names. Anyway, I, that was the idea that I would look at, I would look at, you know, these, these stories and try to find the convergences and then, it sprawled from there because as I began to look at the world looking for partners, I began to see partners in a lot of very surprising places, Vincent Van Gogh and Theo Van Gogh, not just a painter and his you know, kid brother who wrote him checks, but real partners in a fundamental way. Um, many places where two people have independent identities, and yet there is this deep underground influence between them, like Lewis and Tolkien, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and then I began to say, well, wait a second. Like, this is so, this is showing up so many times that I think I have to go back to the, the root of this assumption that the individual is the primary unit with which to talk about creativity and look at where it came from and really, you know, test it and see, you know, does this hold up? And that, you know, led me to this pretty ambitious argument that it is not, it's, it's a myth. And, you know, most places, you know, on a five minute spot, I would just say it's a myth. It's not true, but in a, the, the, the deeper reality is that creativity is inexplicable. And so the, it's a myth in the sense of a, of a story with which we try to account for it. And it's a story that has had some use historically. Well, and what is the that, myth? And what is the myth again? The, the, myth, the of, myth is the, the myth is the myth of the lone genius, the individual creator. That these things arise out of the mind. You know, it's like the immaculate conception story of creativity, and there is some use to it because you know it, it is important to think about the individual. And if you're in a world, and the myth of the lone genius arose in a world where the individual was so radically disrespected that they really, they reacted against it in this time of, of monarchy and like church, you know, the church being everything in the culture. They're like, wait a second, we matter too. We as individuals matter. 
And that's where this, this kind of obsession with the individual begins to grow and the romantics picked it up and it, it was a huge presence in 20th century culture. Um, and this idea of the genius that that's everything. And it's just, it's gotten so far out of hand and it's just, it's the only way practically that we think about the creative process and it, and it really, uh, obscures and neglects the fundamental, um, the fundamental role of exchange. And then the other problem is that there's a a contrary story to the myth of the lone genius, which is to look at networks and cultures and groups and so forth, which is totally valid, but it's so complex that it's really hard to wrap your mind around number one. And number two, it does not speak to the day to day experience, which is the experience of relational exchange and intimacy and moving between solitude and connection and that dance, which it characterizes. And you know, my argument is that characterizes all creative lives, even the lives where even the creative lives where there's a, a, an enormous amount of solitude that's necessary, or there's one person on stage, um, or there's only one person associated with a body of work, which can, can be appropriate all creative lives are activated by relational connection and many, many manifestations. And so the book is about trying to, um, you know, look at all, all the different, all the different ways in which it arises and find the common themes of sort of essential common points all the way through. Yeah, no, it's funny. Cause like, since, uh, you know, there was a big excerpt in the Atlantic and then the New York times, uh, you know, essay. And I started, I've been reading the book and thinking about it and, you see them everywhere. Like once you get this on the brain and you start to think yeah. about, um, you know, artists, you start to think, Oh my God, like every band, it's like Mick and Keith, John and Paul, you know, like, uh, and so on down the line, there tends to be, even if the band is a five piece, there tends to be like two people at the heart of it. The, you know, the, the conversation between whom is driving the thing. And so like, what is it about two as opposed to three or four? I mean, obviously these things happen in communities and, you know, social interaction that leads to creativity, um, can be, uh, you know, a lot bigger than, than simply yeah. the duo, but why yes. does, why does the, the duo tend to be, you know, the heart of it and the driving force? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. And that was something I you know, had to answer for myself. Um, the, 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 you know, cool things happen in threes and fours. Definitely, they're rel- like any any you know unit is is relevant. You go see a nine piece band. It's, every every person in that band is doing something. But big creative work, major advances does, uh, in a, to an overwhelming degree, happen in pairs. And I think it's um, because two people is a social unit, and we're social creatures. We we need another person and on, on some level and some form to kind of create our reality. Uh, I would even suggest that mental illness, a lot of mental illness is living in a reality that no one else shares. So, but we, we need another, we need another person to, to share our reality and two people can really make a whole world. If two people believe something together, they can fully, fully believe that the truth in that in a, in a, in a very deep way. And yet it's immensely fluid and flexible. So two people can take roles and then they can switch roles. Uh, they, they can move between solitude and connection very easily. It's this, it's this very kind of, um, uh, free place 
whereas when you add a, even a third person, it becomes a group and it becomes more solid and stable, which has its value. And uh, there is often a critical third person who's sort of in the shadow of a pair and, and helping support them, like George Harrison did John and Paul, for instance, and as sure. the Beatles did John and Paul. But the moment that person is there, it, it, um, things become a little bit more uh, fixed and you lose that, you know, uh, uh, that, that very dynamic quality. I mean, if you think about three people who are in a room, let's say you want to duck out. Well, like you're leaving the group. If there are two people in a room and you duck out, like, well, you're there alone and that other person's there alone. Right. Like that's your reality. So there's, it is a very special, uh, thing. And, you know, Tony Kushner, I use this as the epigraph of my book that the smallest human unit is two that one is a fiction, that two, that's as small as you can go. And a lot of what I'm trying to do in the book is to try to get the social dynamic down to a place where you can study it and understand it. And I was very inspired by that. He, he said this, and it's, it's from an essay from the afterward to uh, Angels in America, where he's talking about the process and his, his collaborations with Oscar Eustace and this woman, I think her name is Kimberly Flynn, who was his, uh, um, partner in ways that are a little hard to summarize. Well, you know, it's funny too. It's funny too to think about it in a broader context because, you know, like we're talking about creativity and we're talking about, um, you know, the the tension between the lone, uh, the myth of the lone genius and the power of, of you know two people working together. And then you think about you know po politics and the ongoing conversation in America over its history between. Um, you know, the preeminence of the individual versus the collective good. It, yes. it feels like it's all of a piece. And it's like, I, I, I feel like with your book, you're saying something that was like right there, like under my nose. And yet I never really thought about it properly. So that's a credit mm -hmm. to you. Cause it just feels like, of course, you know, like what, why would, uh, you know, why would I not have like thought of it in this way? And then I start to see it in my own life. Um, you know, yeah. just to confess, like, first of all, this podcast, you know, like I am on a twice weekly basis having hour long conversations with uh, writers who are often complete strangers to me, but the conversations nevertheless tend to get somewhat intimate. And obviously, yeah. this could not exist without that duo. And then in my writing life, uh, just recently, I've started writing um, screenwriting with a, a, a writing partner, and it's been a very productive uh, partnership in ways that past creative partnerships uh, writing wise haven't quite been. And yeah. it's like, so it's all very relevant to what's going on with me. And I think that, uh, you know, the uh, isolation of working alone, not having that kind of social interaction has been part of what has made uh, writing in the past more difficult for me. You have to have that other person, whether it's just somebody you're having uh, conversations with, or it's somebody you're actually collaborating with on a piece of work. So, well, I really am glad to hear that. I mean, I think that the, the, what I most hope for my book is that it's a kind of frame, um, that I'm helping to organize this, uh, experience and gives, you know, and, and present its validity and help, you know, uh, give a sense of, 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 of aspects of its shape and that people will see themselves in that frame um, and see these stories and, 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 in that frame. And, um, that's, you know, that's the, that's the highest value. And, uh, you know, I, I also am activated, you know, by many relationships. The one, you know, the, mo the most significant is my, is the editor of the book, Eamon Dolan. It's from his imprint, Eamon Dolan books. 
I describe him as the co-creator of the book, and I think that's uh, entirely fair. Um, and I, I, I'm sure that there are lots of writers, you know, who listen to your show, and I think it's important for them to know that this does not negate the necessity of solitude. This is not contrary to, you know, um, the story of the writer who, you know, needs to go to a cabin for a month. And one of the most moving stories to me in the book is, is Emily Dickinson, who is the, you know, the paragon of solitude. And I use solitude instead of isolation because solitude to me is like when physical aloneness is conducive to creativity. I think solitude is a nice word for it as opposed to isolation, which is more when physical aloneness is, is you know, is kind of abetting, a, um, you know, some psychological or physical um, you know, difficulty. And Emily Dickinson, we really, we really misunderstand her. We think her, think of her as someone who wasn't interested in people who didn't want to be a part of the world. It's really, and this is, there's unanimity in Dickinson scholars on this. She was enormously engaged, enormously caring. And she probably, uh, she really seems to fit the description that the psychologist uh, has. Of the, the, the term is highly sensitive person who is very easily aroused um, and almost overly affected by other people and, and therefore needs a lot of space and a lot of room to cool. And I think a lot of writers are like that. And it may be, you know, one of the major sections of the book is about how much space people take from each other. And that's a dance that everyone, every partnership has to work out for itself. And, you know, I would go months without talking to my editor it, it may be that you write a whole, you know, it may be that you, you have a, a teacher who is a critical influence on you and, and then that person is no longer, you know, a physical presence in your life at all, but that's like the thing that, that has formed you uh, as a consciousness. Right. Um, so it can take many forms. Yeah, I was going to, yeah, because, it, yeah, it's important to point out, like, that doesn't, like, just because creative duos tend to be, um, you know, the core of creativity. Uh, doesn't mean that you're always in the same room, like 24 seven, like even Lennon, yeah. and, even Lennon and McCartney, you know, would go great periods of time without being near one another. And then they would come back together and, and get to work. Yeah. And, and their work, if you look at when their work flowered, now there were lots of things happening, but in the mid sixties, when their work really flowered, um, there was, this was the first time in years that they had spent an enormous amount of time apart. And, um, and they were they were doing different things in that time. John got into acid, was dropping acid every chance he could get. <laughs> right. He said he he said he must have had a thousand trips. Paul uh, took acid a handful of times. Maybe he was not into it. Uh, he he really liked to be in control of the situation. And um, you know he had a, he had another trip. His, he 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 was like the boy king of London, and he wanted to meet in. Antonioni, and he wanted to meet Warhol, and he wanted to meet Allen Ginsberg when he came through town. He wanted to go to all the nightclubs and all the restaurants, and and he did that. And John was much less interested in that stuff, and was you know reading Timothy Leary, and was reading that you know, and they they influenced each other, and they brought things to each other, and they they were they spent a lot of time together, much more than is commonly realized, you know, all the way through. But it was also, you know, the, 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 the time apart was really essential, too. Yeah, well, and, and there are, you break it down in the book, there are, there are elements of creative pairs. Like, you've tried to kind of diagnose it or, uh, you know, give a structure to it. 
And the first one is electricity, which obviously when you think of John Lennon and Paul McCartney, um, there was, uh, you know, some kind of spark. And this is where it gets sort of uh, magical, you know, and hard to define. But like, you know, when two people come together and for whatever reason, they set each other off. But can you talk a little bit about that first element, you know, the, elect the electricity factor and maybe where it comes from? Is there any? Sure. I wonder if um, I wonder if if I if I could. Indulge, indulge myself if it interests you and talk a little bit about the structure of the book. Yeah, sure. And the storytelling, because you know, I this is um, you know, in a in a you know, among writers and people who are interested in in, in, in craft storytelling, it's it's you know, no one. It, 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 as a writer, you know, I mean, the mo most thing, the subject, real subject, writers are most interested in is writing. You know, like a lot of writers would write a book about writing if they could get away with it. Anyway, um, the the ninety five percent of the time when I told people I was doing this, they'd be like, "Oh, so you're going to do like a chapter on on every pair?" Um, or who they say, "Who are your pairs?" You know, and that this anthology model um, was, you know, kind of the obvious way to do it or an obvious way to do it. And then there's this other thing in the culture where like you have little anecdotes from to little lives, you know. And this is the the pop social science model. It's like it's it's always the same you know you begin the chapter with some story some set of characters in some moment and then you never hear from them again and i um i really believe that the truth of life is in stories and i really believe that for the reader to be carried through a story um is the way that you can encounter you know truth and, and be moved by it in a way that reaches you so i set out to do this thing that i still don't know if it works um, and it, and it really seemed crazy. Um, a lot of the time and my editor, a lot of people told me it was crazy and my editor and I share this gumption that we, he was, he was all for it to try to weave a series of stories all the way through so that in the first section, you see dozens of pairs meet. And in the second section, you see dozens of pairs sort of at the stage after meeting and they're not the same pairs. There's some of them continue, some of them don't. And that continues all the way through. And there's a varieties of, you know, there, some of the threads run all the way through some threads you see at the start, you see in the middle, you see at the end, some you really can only see in the middle. And ideally it creates this kind of, um, everyone always throws their brow at me when I use this term, but this meta story, it's like the, it's the, it's the, it's the larger story of this arc of, of, you know, um, electricity and chemistry, which is where it starts all the way through to, you know, the way that people are entwined with each other, you know, even after they stop working together or even after one of them, even after one of them dies, or, you know, maybe they've, in some cases they, you know, they seem to ride off in the sunset together and kind of stay, connected to the end, but, um, um, do you want to talk a, a little bit about that sort of starting yeah, point on the I, I electricity? Mean, I, I, well, I think electric, I mean, just to give people an idea of, uh, like what you're positing here and like the art, yeah. the art, the, the arc that you're trying to draw, because, um, you know, I find it, I find it really fascinating and, uh, you know, so much of it rings true, but you think about the meaning of, you know, just to use John and Paul, because they're such a, a preeminent example of this and everybody knows who they are. Um, but you know, their meeting, uh, which, yeah. so, 
Yeah. Can I ask you to be my editor and tell me about how many minutes you want me to do this in? The reason I could, I, I, I could do a variety of lengths of the kind of talking through the arc. Um, Maybe like we'll do it, like ten minutes. You know, we can go through. Oh it. yeah, yeah. Let's. Do All it. right. All right. That's that's a that's a good amount of time. Um. Okay. So yeah. So the first question is like, where do people meet? And this is actually, you know, like physically, what was the first moment they encountered each other? And I I looked at you know many many stories and the and the Lennon McCartney story is that they met, um, because Paul's a uh, Paul had a friend who knew. John too, and knew that he was a, he had started a band called the Quarry Men. Um, they were in the equivalent of high school, um, and they and uh, the Quarry Men had a gig, and Paul came to see them. And Paul, he was behind this church in Liverpool, and Paul ambled onto the you know under the under the under the grounds and saw John up there, and saw him uh, vamping to this doo wop song and turning it into the blues by making up the by changing the lyrics on the fly. And he was just awed by it. Um, and then they went across the road. The band had a gig that night, and um, uh, Paul hung around and, uh, and got a guitar somewhere. And started. He, he started playing. And there's a piano in there, and he played some stuff on piano. And um, Paul was just amazed that John had the you know had the gumption to to, to vamp. And then, and then you see John was amazed. That Paul is a kid who he had learned these uh, chord, these chord changes, and, and these lyrics that no one knew. And you had to be extremely fastidious. You couldn't Google that stuff. You had to, you had to listen to the song over and over again on the radio, and sit there by your, with, with with your notebook. And um, there's like this. So it's this is the theme that arises from these meeting stories: is the shared love like a very deep preoccupation with, with work that would be obscure, even to kids who love music, along with these just very profound differences in temperament and style and kind of approach to it. And that's what you have from the, from the shared ground is the kind of the rapport and the, you know, the foundation for work together. And what you have from the differences is, is the tension, the spark, the, the kind of implicit challenge or explicit challenge. And that kind of sets the stage well, but it, the, it, well, it's also yeah. I should also say like you know that with these creative pairs, uh, you know, like while they have their differences, it's it's often a case of complementary skill sets where one fills the void left by the other, and vice versa. You know, like so, yeah. John's strengths, um, you know, help to fill in some of the space where Paul might have been weaker, and vice, you know, and vice versa. And so you, you know, that's a big part of it. Um, the, like you, talk, yeah, there's sort of, yeah, it, it is definitely. I'm sorry to cut you off. No, it's okay. I was just—I was going to say, like, there's that, uh, there's that, uh, you know, moments you're talking about where John's being like really rude uh, in the studio because he could be a lot more brash than Paul, who was more the diplomat. And then you see, you know, Paul kind of coming in and always like, you know, smoothing things over. And um, you know, the point that you make is that you know John could not have been as brash as he was without having Paul there to sort of serve in that role. And, yeah, you know, so it's, yeah. it's it's interesting to see how these two temperaments sort of work off of one another, and and like the symbiosis that develops. Right. Yes, definitely. The um, you know, there's two kind of ways of thinking about things coming together. That two cliches that I think are useful. One is like peanut butter and jelly tastes better together. You know, like or like Legos. It's like you know, you want the negative and the positive to to kind of to snap together, and that is often the case. It's like 
one guy's good at X, the other guy's good at Y, you know, one guy's good with uh, structure, the other guy's good with, with jokes, you know, they should be a team. And, and that's cool. And, you, and it's, you know, one guy's an engineer, one guy's a, you know, one guy's good at marketing, but, and you also need to, to think of the other cliche, which is the oyster and the grain of sand, which is, it's not so much a matter of like, you know, these things joining harmoniously, but like this, this, this kind of tension and irritation. And both those are stories that are, uh, both those are angles on a, on a relationship like John and Paul that are, that are, that are critical. Um, they did do things for each other, you know, that, that the other couldn't do, but they also drove each other and they, 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 they spurred each other and they, uh, they inspired each other and they also irritated each other, uh, in, in, in such a way that, that made something meaningful and we're kind of off jumping through the narrative now, but yeah. if you look, if you look at McCartney's greatest work towards the end of the, of the band and a lot of the songs that are really him at his height, uh, like Hey Jude, um, like, you know, um, you know, um, not the long and winding road, which is a little bit schmaltzy, but a lot of these songs are heartbreak songs, you know, the two of us, they're heartbreak songs. It's like, and, and John Lennon broke his heart, man. He broke his heart so hard. And I'm not saying these songs are like directly explicitly about John, but it's very clearly, or let it be. And I tried to learn piano a couple of years ago and I was, that's they started me on let it be. And it's a really interesting song. It's like, this is not a guy just being like, he's not a guy who is convinced that he can let it be. He is, desperately trying to, you know, pull himself out of this, you know, devastation. And it's very, it's like the, the great glory of that partnership is really intricately entwined with enormous pain. And, you well, they, know, they had both, they had both lost their mothers, which is something that I think bonded them emotionally. Um, yes. And like they, and there's a, I was reading and I'm, I'm going to blank on the name of the biographer. It's the most recent big Beatles biography. Oh, Lewis and Mark Lewis. And yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was reading that. And like, there was this, you know, he's painting this uh, scene where the, you know, as young boys, they had this like night, like dark night of the soul where they really talked about it. And I think, you know, back in those days and li like Liverpudlian culture, you know, boys didn't necessarily share their feelings like that, but they had like a cry together and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, humanizes them, but also I think illustrates the depth of their bond, uh, both personally and creatively. And then, you know, you sort of allude to this uh, in your book is that there's also kind of something sexual about it, you know, <laughs> like, uh, or at least there's like some subterranean level of attraction at that w in that way, or do you agree or disagree? The erotics of creative exchange, man, it's, it's, um, it's a huge subject and a really challenging one to talk about because in part because we immediately want to go to sex and, you know, was John gay or, you know, what it like, and one of the, one of the important, it's important to just begin the discussion by distinguishing, distinguishing between sex, which is a physical act right. and eroticism, which is this quality of being drawn. And often the erotic is uh, being drawn and repelled simultaneously and that, you know, Ann Carson and, and her discussion of eroticism emphasizes that it, that's not an aspect of eroticism. That is, it's at its essence, is this is sort of pursuing the thing that you cannot capture. Um, 
and there's a way in which sex is kind of the end of eroticism because it's because it is the completion of 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 a of a of a pursuit and you know how it manifests between two men um you know in a in a culture like theirs uh to what degree they're conscious of it i don't know but you look at those photographs and you and you look at their body language and you listen to the way they talked about each other and they they loved each other and they were drawn to each other in an animal way and they had an animal awareness of the other and um that goes beyond you know what you might describe as like a kind of a, a colder quality which is not to say uh, that there aren't uh you know immensely effective collaborative relationships that are a little colder in fact, Penn and Teller, you know, that's that's Penn's main thing when I mean, he describes the relationship. He says that it's always had a kind of clinical quality to it, like two guys who are relying on each other professionally, but without a, a whole lot of emotional heat. But many, many of the great stories have a, a lot of that heat so much that like the room gets too hot and like they got to get out for a while. And that's, well, yeah, you know, that's the story. That's the story of Suzanne Farrell and George Balanchine. That's the story of uh, Martin and Lewis. That, that that story shows up a lot. Yeah, I was going to say because there is, you know, uh, rec- that, that recurring theme where interpersonal conflict and tension often coincides uh, with creative innovation. You know, and so, you know, it seems like almost like uh, for for most of uh, you know cre- for most creative pairs, um, you know, conflict is a necessary part of the soup, and you know, it, things that can look to other people like a really dysfunctional, ugly mess, uh, can often yield really beautiful results. Yeah. And yeah. And that's, you know, that's, and that's part of a, that's, that's, that's part of any, I mean, that's just part of the, the day-to-day work of a, of a creative life. I mean, the, and, and it, when I was talking about, when you're talking about criticism it, it, or, or conflict, it's, it's very challenging because how do you well, how do you even define a negative moment between two creative people? If you know, um, if I show you a draft, you know, you're my colleague, and you kind of eviscerate it, I might be depressed for two days, and so that might be like the low moment of my month. But maybe that's when I just you know I'm in the bathtub one day and I'm like, how do I come back from that? And I am like, this is what I need to do. You know, I, I, I remember being driven to that place over and over again with my first book, you know, like, what is this about? Like, why do I need to finish this book? Because there's so many forces seem to align against it. Right. But what is the thing I need to say that I cannot, I, I'm not going to be able to, 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 to live with myself if I don't, uh, if I don't do it. And that, that yin and yang is you know, I mean, that's just essential. Not to say that we need to suffer so much or that the myth of, you know, the, the you know, the suffering artist that we've got to be, you know, that our lives need to be miserable. That's not true at all. I mean, lots of creative people, you know, have, have really good lives, but a lot also, you know, suffer in ways that, it, that just can never be reached to. And it's, and, and it's, uh, um, I think we need to look at the full story. So what about finding a, a creative partner? I can imagine people listening who might not have, you know, their, the, the John to their Paul or whatever the case. And, you know, is it it's just a matter of serendipity? I mean, obviously you've got to put yourself out there, but especially for writers who I think, 
you know, tend toward the solitary or at least or, or, or need a lot of it, as you mentioned earlier in the case of Emily Dickinson. Um, yeah. But somebody might be thinking to themselves, like, God, this could be something that could be good for me. But like, how, where do I get that? Like, you just you, sh- you start a writer's group, you start showing up at readings. I mean, yeah, all those things. I mean, um, I think the, the first thing to say is that you really uh, thinking about yourself in the light of Lennon McCartney is like, you know, some guy who wants to, you know, is going to run for city council, like going and standing in front of Lincoln Memorial and saying, <laughs> how do I become you? And, you know, even Lennon McCartney were not Lennon McCartney most of the time. They were a couple of guys, you know, writing songs and doing their best and screwing up. And, you know, they, they worked over those so- songs. I mean, a lot of their, what made them great is that they, is, was the work ethic, you know, thousands of takes and um and i i think it's really i think it's really important too to say that this is not a mostly we're talking about you know really eminent eminent uh stories because it, it they're recognizable and they, they help us kind of their way in but this is an everyday story and it and it's all you know at all levels i mean you can be you know um you don't need to have a lifetime partnership with someone to to be sparked in a way that's really essential. And so I think people, it's helpful to start small. And I think it's also helpful to kind of take a mental look, you know, through your life and say, well, what's there now? I mean, I've heard from a lot of people who are reflecting on relationships that they, um, they never really considered in this light. And I've heard from a lot of people who say, oh, well, you know, I know lots of people work in pairs, but it's not for me. And I want to say, well, have you had teachers? Do you have a, a writer said this to me the other day. I was like, do you have an editor? Do you have colleagues? You know, do you have a spouse with whom you go over your ideas? Uh, my friend Dan Kennedy and I did a, a long conversation for the Moth podcast and it came up that, I mean, he, he considers himself a loner and he's one of these people who's like, wait a second, I've been, I've been deeply entwined with people much more than I realized. And we talked about his girlfriend, like every time you talk to Dan, she comes up, you know, right. She's not a collaborator. Uh, she has her own, uh, job and her own life. And, but she's a constant presence in his life and in his mind. And so I think it's helpful to look for that stuff and to, and, and to say, well, you know, how can I draw that out? How can, how can I respect it a little bit more? Maybe it's, maybe it's a garden that's already in your backyard and you just need to, you know, pull some of the weeds and, and give it some more water and fertilizer but a lot of people do need something, you know, fresh and new. And there's a lot of serendipity is involved. But I think one good way to think about it is to think about, you know, the basic combination is common interests and then kind of like combined with like, you know, a, a challenging sensibilities. And you could start either place. Um, but one, I think one natural way to think about it, and it seems the way that a lot of pairs start is, you know, begin with the foundation, begin with the shared interests, you know, I mean, to me, the bread loaf writers conference is like heaven on earth, you know, it's like, that's where my people are. Right. Right. <laughs> or a little bit, you know, AWP, but the bread loaf is just magical. Uh, but, you know, go to a place where writers gather. If you're a writer, go to a place where if you're a, you know, if you're like a, a tech head, you know, go, go to those kinds of places but then once you're at that place, don't look for the guy who's like, you know, the easiest person in the world to talk to. Look for the guy 
who kind of arouses you, which may be fun, uh, absorbing, it may make you laugh, or it may be kind of unpleasant. You may feel competitive with him or her. You may feel like you may actually really be bugged by him or her, you know. And that often, that energy is often um, something that is worth following because, um, uh, you know, it's that, that as I and I dwelled on a lot that that tension is a really important ingredient. So, okay, so for you personally with Eamon Dolan, your editor, um, like what's the dynamic there? And like how did, how did uh, you know, he, um, you know, uh, like what, what role did he perform? What role did you perform? Like how did the relationship work creatively for this book in particular? Well, it's a really long story. I mean, I've been working with Eamon one way or another for, for you know, I met him in the late 90s. We, he picked up Lincoln's Melancholy, which was actually in shambles from another editor. That's a whole other story. Um, I mean, I, I was responsible for the shambles, but I was with an editor who who couldn't help me fix it. Um, and Eamon picked it up, and, and, and we, we made it work together. And um, we started working on this book um, late, like 2008, early 2009. I sold him a proposal in 2010. So it's many years and hundreds of conversations and, you know, thousands of pages of, you know, manuscript exchange. But, you know, he has his role. He's an editor. Eamon says all the time, like, I'm not going to tell you ideas. Like, I'm not going to tell you, tell you what story to pursue. Like I respond. Um, and in many, many ways, he's very conscious of, of his role and he does what he can do and he doesn't do more. Um, you know, we would have long conversations. I was trying to work out ideas and he would, you know, he would ask me questions and he would offer his reflections, but he didn't, you know, stay up all night, you know, worrying about how I was going to get to the next draft. I mean, that was my job and he was waiting and doing other things while, um, while I did that work. And when it comes to publishing the book, you know, other sets of roles kick in and he's, you know, he's, he's managing this whole production process, which is quite complex and, um, and kind of crafting a message for the book and the marketing materials and the, and the cover and all that. So there's a lot of distinctions and divisions and editorially there are a lot of, um, you know, I'm much more interested in, um, in story for story's sake. I'm much more interested in emotion and character. Um, I'm, I have a kind of mystical mind. Like I can, I can, I'm very happy listening to a great meditation teacher or, you know, even, you know, farther out than that. Um, Eamon is much more grounded in kind of the practical world and, you know, is listening to Slate podcasts on the way, way to work. And <laughs> he's, and he, Eamon really gets like form and structure and like, how does a book, I remember when I published Lincoln's Melancholy, I went to the BEA and it was like, you know, as an author or as a reader, you think about, oh, I write a book and, um, people read books. So you think about that one-on-one exchange, but if you go to the BEA, you're in a, in a, in a, in a room, the size of a football field. And there are God knows how many books, tens and thousands of different titles. And the book editor's job is to think, how do you get through that? Like the Willy Wonka chocolate bar. You remember that story that like they had to take a chocolate bar, the size of a house to send it through the TV so that it'd be the, the size of like a, a, a tiny little chocolate bar. Right. Like how do you get through that media maze and all the distractions people have? It's not like what's your idea or what's your story. How do you get that into 
the hands of a reader. And this is something that he's brilliant at and I'm much, much less good at. And a lot of what this book has become is him pushing me like, like, I want to write about chemistry. Okay, tell me more. You know, and then I got him the Lone Genius thing and he's like, Eamon was the one who was like, okay, but why are pairs special? And I was like, I don't know. I want to write about pairs. That's not the point. He's like, that's, you, you need to tell me what's going on with a pair that's different than threes. And I was like, okay. And I went and I studied it and I came back with it. And, and I, I had, of course, had to persuade myself it was true. He, he didn't want me to just fill in a blank. Um, but very, very tough guy, very hard to please. And, um, you know, that was, uh, there was a lot of conflict there too. Cause well, because I was going to say, you kind of want that from your editor. I mean, you know, I think writers, nobody likes to hear like, this isn't good enough or, you know, go back to the drawing board. But the truth, I think, for most writers anyway, is that like you want someone who, you know, has a clear eye and is a straight shooter and who like has the courage to tell you when it's not ready, you know, so that you can step your game up or, you know, do the hard work to make it better. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, I'm, I'm very lucky in that way. And then, you know, then, then they were actually at the end of the process, it's, it's reversed because a book like this, you know, um, we need to get it out. You know, three years from now, this will, this, this, this story is, is a moving story about the, the discovery of the, the, the social foundation of, 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 you know, human nature. And, um, I got on it at the right time. Uh, and, um, Eamon wanted this book out in January and he, you know, it probably would have been a better, better season for it. And he thought August, that's the late, that's the latest we can do this. And it was, so that you have to backpedal nine months because it takes about nine months for a book to be produced. So last fall it's, he's, you know, he was bringing down the hammer and I didn't feel done and I didn't think I could get it done. And things got really ugly. Um, because you know, we, we just had these, He's looking at, you know, the necessities of publishing and I'm looking at this thing as a, you know, this is my life's work um, and I want everything to be perfect. And, um, you know, we, we had to, we had to work it out and, you know, we had a relationships are emotional and fluid and ambiguous, but they're also often legal, legal frameworks. And we had a, we had a contract, you know, I, I was obligated to him. Um, and in some ways at that point he became my boss, you know? Right. And, um, that I can say now I'm glad for, but if you had talked to me in December, <laughs> uh, you know, like all through last fall, I was just, I was a wreck. I was like, you know, and there came a moment and this kind of goes back to the solitude thing. Eamon and I played it out and I, I wanted, I would kept coming back to him and, let's talk about this and I need your support and feedback and encouragement. There came a moment when I recognized that, that I, I had to, I had to, I had to go into my cave and, and make this draft work as best as I could and present it to him full. And I actually um, literally checked into a hotel, the standard hotel in downtown LA, which I ended up writing the epilogue about because I thought I was going to go crazy there. Yeah, I was going to say um, that's, that's sort of like a – it's kind of the perfect hotel to hole up in if you just need to like lock yourself down. It's a little, it's a little creepy, those hallways. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. It's a funny comparison because it's gorgeous, bright red carpet and these beautiful modern fixtures. But 
They're really long hallways, and I'm walking down, and I'm like, I'm here alone. <laughs> I've checked myself into this hotel to finish a manuscript. I feel like I'm going insane, and I was, I of course, thought about Barton Fink, and uh, that, you know, with a smile, you know, and that that was that's the title of the epilogue, Barton Fink at the Standard Hotel. And you just did it just to concentrate, to block out all the scripts? Um, I thought the book was due around Thanksgiving and I was like, I'm going to finish. I'm going to take a vacation. And I, and I rented my house on Airbnb uh, and, the, and it, it went on and on and these renters were coming. And I thought, uh, I, I thought maybe that's, you know, maybe I just need to just go to a room and, and, and not leave. And it was actually really, really lovely. And it, it I, I presented it as a solitude story, but it was also, um, had I been in my house, I would have been really alone and like take out and like, but I was at a hotel. I would go down. I would, you know, wave to the, you know, to the, to the woman behind the counter. I would go to this cafe, you know, that yellow cafe at the standard, sure. which is just a gorgeous room. And the staff could not have been sweeter and they had great food and the same staff, you know, brings room service up and we didn't get to be great friends, but they recognized me after many days and uh I played ping pong, you know, once or twice and so it actually that that helped me from being, you know, totally crazy, uh, that I was, you know, that I could see some other people. And I was downtown, you can walk around and uh, you know, that was I'm actually quite fond of it now, but it was it was uh it it, it wasn't it wasn't fun going through it. Yeah, and it's so funny. Like in in hindsight, everything it's like the rose colored glasses come out. You're like, that was such a fun struggle. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. In the midst of it, it's, well, it's like helps. childbirth. You know, you yeah. have to forget. You have to forget. Not that I would know, but you see this happen with women that they, you know, you you, it's just there's a kind of amnesia, and uh, you know that's probably necessary because how else would you go in again? Right. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned earlier that you consider uh, Eamon the uh, co-creator of this book, and yet on the cover of the book, uh, it's your name as the yes. author. And so what about that? Because, you know, you, you mentioned this in the book that like in a lot of creative duos, you know, one of the partners is unknown to history or who, you know, is sort of below the title or, you know, yes. buried a little bit. So like, how do you reconcile that? Well, so, you know, there are two, I think there are two, there are two things to say. One is that there are, there is often injustice around credit uh, when uh, partners who are not, you know, named or not kind of uh, sufficiently recognized, like when that story goes untold, um, that's really sad. And it, it's, it's, it's sad for the people who don't get the recognition they deserve. And it's sad for the rest of us who don't know the reality um, and, and in a lot of cases, we never will. There's so many stories through history where women have been, you know, really essential to the work that bore their husband's name or some other man's name, and it's not recorded, and we'll just, you know, we'll never know. Um, and then there are places where we know a little bit enough to know there's something intriguing, but we, like Marsha Lucas and George Lucas, we know enough to know that you know, she was a major, major presence in those early movies, the Star Wars movies and American Graffiti and Indiana Jones. Um, but we, you know, there's so much more that we, that we could know if, if, if there were better records and if, you know, she was, she told the story more and so forth. And if George Lucas told the story, but that said, um, 
while there is injustice, there's also appropriate discrepancies in credit. And um, a lot of times there are people who are behind the cameras, literally or metaphorically, and they like it that way. They don't want to be a public figure. Uh, uh, I do like to be a public figure. Um, but that said, I also enjoy, I'm a curator and I enjoy doing things where I'm the guy making it happen. I like supporting other people. You know, I, the, the, the greatest, you know, some of the greatest pleasures in my life have been when my students have published books. Right. And I don't, I mean, maybe I'm in the acknowledgments. That's not the important thing. I feel connected to it. When I see them and they look me in the eye, I know, I know that we're, you know, we're intimate and I'm glad for them to have their moment of, you know, being the star. And Eamon, um, I think is actually perfectly credited for this book. It's a nice little detail that while we were writing it, he acquired the book at Penguin Press, but he moved to, um, he came back to Houghton Mifflin Harcourt where he had been before and he created his own imprint called Eamon Dolan Books. And so the, the cover says Joshua Wolfshank, but if you turn inside, it says an Eamon Dolan book. And that is a very nice credit line. Um, and, um, you know, people like me have a hard time understanding people like Eamon and like how he would enjoy, you know, being a kind of, um, behind the scenes in many ways. Um, and I'm sure he has a hard time understanding, you know, uh, crazy shit I do for attention. <laughs> uh, and, and, and people like us often work well together. Um, I mean, John and Paul both wanted to be on the bill and they both were. Um, but they, you know, also had Brian Epstein who was, um, you know, he was, he was not on stage with them, nor, nor did he want to be. And that very often, you know, you look for that combination and it's, uh, that's, um, that can be a really positive and powerful thing. Um, some people, you know, it, it can be a lot saner and a lot more stable and even a lot more creative, uh, let's make sure to say, to be the one who's not on stage. I mean, it's a mistake to say that the producer is like a logistics guy. A lot of times the producer is a visionary. Right. Uh, Sometimes the producer, sometimes the offstage guy, like there's this great new documentary that Mike Myers made about, I think his name is Shep Gordon, who was... Superman. He authored Alice Cooper. He wrote that story. But he was totally unknown, so much so that when Mike Myers went to make the documentary, he's like, "Hey, where's your archive? Where are these? Fo- you know, where's some photos?" And 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 Shep was like, "Oh, um, there are no photos. What do you mean? <laughs> I would never be in a photo. That's how I, I did not. I I was not a part of that story. It was I needed to be off, literally, off camera." And it was like a, apparently a huge struggle to get the, the stuff they needed to even tell the story in retrospect. Unfortunately, those guys are living and they can tell the stories, but right. that's a classic, classic thing that the hidden guy is hidden and you ought not know about him. And Robert Gottlieb, he gave this interview to the Paris Review apparently very reluctantly, and he insisted that his editors be part of it, which was unusual. And a big part of the story is him saying, I don't, it's not appropriate for people to know what I do. That should not. The reader should not be thinking about the editor and the writer. The reader should be in relationship to the writer. And uh, Gottlieb also writes himself and has his moment as the author. But that 
there's a lot of dignity in that role, and it's a huge unspoken story in the story of the creative work. It's like, you know, when the credits roll, you know, they go by so fast, it's a blur. Well, those are relationships there, you know, and, yeah. and they're really, it's, it's, if you want to make work or if you want to understand how the work you love was made, you have to pay attention to it. Well, and the thing too is that, you know, you, you break down different types of bonds between pairs where you have like the overt partnership, like Lennon, Lennon and McCartney working together, or you have like, uh, it's called distinct, you know, where you have like, uh, authors like CS Lewis and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien or Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, who are sort of measuring themselves against one another from a distance and have maybe like, uh, an epistolary relationship or they look at each other's work or whatever. And then, uh, asymmetrical where it's more of like a boss deputy thing. And, and listening to you talk about your, uh, relationship with Eamon, uh, it's worth noting that it seems like at different stages of the process in writing this book, you've kind of had, uh, each, each type of bond, you know, each type yeah. of bond has had its moment. It's not like you're in a fixed position. Uh, these relationships are fluid and sometimes they, uh, take on multiple identities as the thing goes along. Yeah. You know, it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting observation. It's true. Um, like we did an event the other night together and we were both the co-stars of the show and people were asking him to sign the book <laughs> afterwards. Uh, and there were times when I was his employee and, um, there are times when he's serving my vision. I, the, the, it's really hard to explain and it's even hard to understand, but the, the magic formula is like clarity and fluidity. Like with power, there's usually a dominant presence in a partnership and that is really good for like people do best when they know their role in the pecking order usually. Um, so that's not a bad thing, but it, if it becomes fixed and hardened, then it's just death to creativity. So like that's the, 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 you know, it takes 20,000 words to play that out in the book, but that's kind of the heart of the story about power. If it was a free for all, it would just be chaos. But if it was totally fixed and hardened, then it would be, you know, it would just be, you know, bureaucracy. And like, so with John and Paul, like there's really, there's no question that John was the dominant presence overall. But the details of it are um, are really interesting, and there was a lot of power struggle, and I actually think that's the single most important lens of the arc of their story, and that if you want to understand what happened between them at the end, it was the power struggle kind of spinning out of control to the point where they 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 just reached an impasse it wasn't It was not the end um, neither intended it to be the end. But it got to a point where they just couldn't work together um, for some pretty practical reasons as well as the emotional reasons. And, um, you know, that, that, yes, yeah, so that, 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 that power struggle is like often essential, but, uh, but can get out of hand. Well, and the thing too is that, you know, you make a point and the book sort of, uh, you know, draws to this conclusion that the, there's not really an ending. And even though, uh, John Lennon's no longer with us. It's hard not to imagine Paul McCartney keeping him in, keeping him in mind when he works on new material, uh, sort of measuring himself against what he imagines John might think. And, you know, yep. you know, so it's like there really isn't and, a, a fixed yeah. punctuation mark on this, these kinds of relationships. Yeah. And measuring himself against the work that they did together when they were in their twenties. Right. You know, and he's, 
he's literally in the Guinness Book of World's Re- World Records as the most successful composer of all time. <laughs> and yet, and a lot of that, a lot of the, the numbers come after the Beatles um, record sold. And, you know, that Paul was huge in the 70s. You know, we forget because John has become a martyr. But, you know, but Paul went on to, to be just like a ginormous star while John was um, really struggling to get a hit for a lot of the decade. But I think it's, you know, it's a really, to me, it's really poignant and um, it's, it's really, it's really the best and, and, and the worst because they made something together that's, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's in the DNA of our culture. Um, and yet, um, there's, there was, uh, there's something tragic about it cause it did end and, and it, and, and, uh, they, they're, 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 they never really reconciled and that it wasn't like accidental. Like they weren't part of the way they work, they, the, the work together was the thing. They, they didn't, they didn't work things out in conversation, you know, and, and, it's enormously sad that it that it got interrupted in that way, and and uh, I, I think that um, I, I I I can empathize. I mean, it sounds kind of kind of silly, maybe even grandiose, but I I feel a lot of empathy for Paul and someone in his situation. And that there there are a number of stories like this where people, you know, the partner has gone or gone off in some faraway place, and there's just a real there's something missing. You know, and it's um, it's very poignant. Yeah. Well, I, I think that might be a good note to end on. And, uh, you know, not to be too uh, silly, but I, I couldn't have done this without you. <laughs> so I thank you for it. Well, t- it's fun. And, I, you know, you asked at the start, am I, am I exhausted? It's totally energizing to have a great real conversation like this. And, you're, and, I, and I totally noticed myself this week. Like, I can tell within seconds of starting to talk to somebody like what the energy is and and um i have this material in my head but it's it you know i can be tremendously like wooden and inarticulate if i don't have a good partner for these conversations so i'm I'm grateful for what you do with me and with you know with all the great interviews you've done well thank you so much for taking the time it's been a great pleasure yeah thank you Okay, guys, there he is. That's Joshua Wolfshank. What a terrific guest. Great book. It's called Powers of Two. It's an Eamon Dolan book. Uh, Go get yourself a copy. It's out there now. You can find Joshua Wolfshank online at shank.net. He's also on Facebook, and you can find him on the Twitter where his handle is at Joshua Wolfshank. Thanks to Kill Rockstars. Uh, As usual, for all the great music, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget about that app, the free official other people app it's the official app of this program it's the best way to listen i highly encourage you to go get the app and uh, download it to your device it's free and it's available wherever apps are available here's why you need it you uh you get that app and then you don't have to do anything new episodes automatically upload you can listen to uh episodes offline if you don't have a wi-fi connection you just download them right there within the app and then best of all uh, if you want to stream the archives you can sign up for premium right there within the app. It's very cheap, 2 bucks a month, 5 bucks for a full six months of access, or you can sign up for a full year of access for only $9, which comes out to about $0.75 cents a month. So, uh, you know, you get the app, you get the most recent 50 episodes of this program for free. 50. Free. And then if you want to stream the other 
250 some odd episodes you just sign up for premium right there within the app so go get the other people app it's free uh thanks to uh who what else oh if you want to email me the address is letters at other ppl.com let me know what you think tell me a story pour your heart out collaborate with me i'll read your email on this show if it's interesting it's compelling and then we will be working in collaboration i think there really is something to it and uh you know i wish i would have figured that out earlier not been so hard-headed but that's life you know i really like the way that uh joshua wolfshank he seems like a guy who's got a lot of humility i always like that in people you know humility is important and i think one way or another we get it hopefully you get it before it's too late you know what I'm saying? Please remember that Paul Robeson died of pneumonia and kidney failure and that Calvin died of hemorrhages of the lungs. Uh, thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks again to Joshua Wolfshank. Go get Powers of Two. Uh, I will be back from uh, vacation soon. Uh, imminently. I think right now, as you're listening to this, I could potentially be relaxing, which would be uh, extraordinary. But uh, I will be back uh, next week. And uh, I would be, you know, back in my regular schedule. So, uh, once again, I have delivered, uh, I have delivered episodes in my own absence. And I have continued to talk about how I'm not here, <laughs> even though there's been no interruption in the uh, regular broadcast of this podcast. Uh, so I hope I didn't waste your time with all that. It's a genuine concern of mine. I'm genuinely concerned about you. <laughs> <laughs>